A recent article from TheHill.com reads the following. The criminal justice system works against minorities. I wanted to explore this topic with someone who has the expertise in this field. Today, we are blessed to be joined by Kenya Tyson, founder of K. Tyson & Associates, a boutique consulting firm offering training and consulting expertise in the practice areas of criminal justice and higher education. On this episode, we look to explore the system overall, our local and state governments, and how you can partner with Kenya in the future. This episode is brought to you by the Black Equity Network, and I'm DJ Motri. Welcome to the Black Equity Podcast. Listeners, we are here for another great episode of the Black Equity Podcast. This is going to be an exciting episode. We're going to be able to dive into criminal justice and public policy. And I wanted to bring someone on who could touch on those areas and, and possibly much more. Uh, we have on the line Kenya Tyson. Kenya, are you there? I am. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon as well. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, just a little bit about uh, what you do in the criminal justice and public policy space. Okay. Um, well, thanks first and foremost for having me on today. Um, I'm very honored to be here and to be able to speak with you and, um, and the folks that will be listening to the podcast. Um, so essentially uh, what I do is I work primarily in the fields of justice reform. Um, I do a lot of work around race and crime and other types of inequality um, and I work in two sectors. I work in uh, criminal justice, and I also work in higher education. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I do primarily as a day job. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, currently I am the assistant provost of academic affairs and university curriculum at the new school, 
which is a university in New York City. Okay. Um, yeah, and in that role, I oversee kind of the strategic vision and operational improvement of all of the university's undergraduate degree programs. So essentially, I'm helping uh, the different schools and deans uh, it, put together programs and minors, and um, I run the general education program. Um, but in addition to that, I also am an attorney um, and have worked uh uh, predominantly in justice spaces for the last 20 years. Um, also, in my previous role, I was the uh, associate dean of the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers. And so a lot of the work that I did in that role really kind of focused on um, justice and, and the ideas of how we as people should be um, navigating through the systems um, in this country. Wow. Kenya, you you are definitely the right person to talk to <laughs> on this subject. How how did you get into this world? When did you know, okay, I, I want to, you know, focus on this particular area? Oh wow. So for me that was really um I was actually really young. Um I I wanted I've wanted to be an attorney since I was in the single digits. So before I was 10 I knew that's what I wanted to do Um, and then I come from a very politically active family and I knew that I wanted to somehow uh, navigate race and justice and I also come from a family of academics both of my parents worked at universities so that was kind of like home for me Um, and so those two things together just kind of um, emerged and so that's kind of how I got it. I guess I got it honest. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until I went to undergrad um, at Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a historically Black uh, university, mm-hmm. um, that I really got an opportunity to delve deep and formulate my own opinions about uh, justice in this country and um, the way that Black folks in this country navigate um, the criminal justice continuum. And so while I was there, I majored in political science, but I also had these really great professors, um, one of which um, Professor Larry Little, who kind of introduced me and my classmates to the Innocence Project. And so um, during that time, um, we kind of worked um, on a case, um, uh, Daryl Hunt's case, which some people are familiar with, but it was my first real opportunity to see um, the justice system really not work the way it was supposed to. Mm. And um, I was very, I felt very compelled by that and decided um, at that point to go to law school. Um, and so I went to law school and um, uh, worked in criminal defense. Um, I spent some time with the Defenders Association of Philadelphia and uh, time at a smaller uh, firm But ultimately, what I figured um, out very early on was that by the time people got to me, by the time I was able to really kind of interact with people who were on the, um, I I guess what we would call the wrong side of the of the criminal justice system, um, in many ways, it was really too late to have the kind of impact that I wanted to have. Mm. So that doesn't mean that you can't be redeemed within the system. But I wanted to have a much bigger um, impact. And as a person who kind of grew up around 
education and having my parents work in education, um, particularly higher education. Um, one of the things that I, that I discovered um, and, and then formally discovered when I did my master's in criminal behavior analysis is that, you know, education is one of the most pro-social behaviors there is. So in other words, if a person is engaging in an educational process, they're less likely to commit crime and they're also more likely to have a higher quality of life. And so that's kind of where these, these, two, in, um, these two fields kind of intersect for me and where I've, I've really kind of stayed for the last, probably the last 20 years or so. Now you, you mentioned that you noticed that you, it was by the time they got to you, it was too late. And so then you mentioned education. So what are you doing now to get, to get to them early? Is it to get them into the educational side or what are you saying there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Okay. Um, so, so what I discovered, uh, when I discovered that, or when I had that particular epiphany for myself, I actually uh, left the practice and went into teaching. Okay. So I um, started uh, teaching. I worked in um, community college for about four or five years. And I thought that was a really good um, area or space to start in because community colleges take in all students. Um, there's less elitism in community college um, because there are no, um, most community colleges don't have admission requirements mm -hmm. with the exception of sometimes having a GED. And so it was really an opportunity to meet people where they were um, and to kind of use that uh, process or that technique um, as I kind of continued to do the work. And so now I'm meeting people where they are um, because I had that opportunity and I figured out how to have different conversations with people um, to really kind of break things down um, so that uh, people are able to understand um, and to help people kind of prioritize ideas in their in their own um, in their own heads and lives. And so um, I taught there and um, really kind of moved into a four year space um, and was a professor and department chair. Um, and, uh, I took us a, a quick, um, a three-year sabbatical to, uh, work with the Department of Justice for the anti-gang program. But after that, I went back into higher ed as a dean, um, and ultimately now as a, uh, a, a provost. So, um, and all, and always teaching, I've been teaching, um, for the last 20 years. I'm, uh, after this podcast, I'll be putting in final grades. So, <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm holding you up right now. <laughs> it's a good, this okay. is a good break. Trust okay. me, when you, when you're grading papers, you need that break. But, um, but just, uh, you know, it just gives me an opportunity to educate people about um, uh, the system, to provide them with an opportunity to kind of sharpen their critical thinking skills and stuff like that. So, um, and that is an opportunity to um, kind of avoid uh, uh, some criminal engagement. And the other thing that I um, had been doing for the last, I guess, three or four years is um, during my time at Rutgers, I was uh, uh, responsible for the academic administration of the second largest prison education program in the United States. Wow. Um, and so that also gave me an opportunity to see just how transformational education could be because I was um, working in a space where we were able to provide 
individuals who were incarcerated at state prisons in New Jersey with the opportunity to earn a bachelor's in justice studies um, from Rutgers University and um, was fortunate to see that process um, through and also see three, two or three graduating um, classes. So congratulations. Thank you. It's just exciting work and it's invigorating and um, it just, it's a daily reminder of why it's important to be informed and to be knowledgeable, not only about, um, you know, like traditional academic liberal arts, you know, um, ideas, but also the world that we live around that, that we uh, are living in. Definitely. You, you mentioned a lot of people don't understand uh, the system. And so Mm -hmm. maybe on today's episode, what we can help people do is give them a brief understanding of what the system is. Are there one, two, three points that people need to be aware of when it comes to the system that they may have not had any dealings with so far? Yeah, absolutely. I teach a lot of courses on um, criminal justice, the criminal justice system. Um, I just finished, wrapped up a course on um, court systems. And so um, there are definitely some things that folks need to know. And um, the thing that I will start with is just kind of like this whole idea of a system. You know, when people think about criminal justice, they think about laws and police officers and judges um, and, you know, all of these statutes and all this stuff. And, and, and while it's very true that, uh, those are all components of the criminal justice system. I think the one thing that people um, really kind of fail to realize is the criminal justice system is really a series of people making a series of choices. It's about people and it's about discretion, right? And then there's that underlying, uh, you know, they're the underlying laws that kind of uh, inform some of that, but so much that happens in the justice system um, in most countries, but specifically in the United States, is, you know, the people who are kind of keeping it running and the way that they're interpreting uh, different laws, the, the discretion that they're using to make a determination about whether this person um, faces a trial or this person doesn't or whether this person gets to run a red light and this person doesn't. It really is more um, about those people in the systems um, I would say than anything else. It, so if I'm understanding correctly, mm-hmm. it's how people are interpreting the laws and what they're deciding to enforce and what not to enforce. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. In my opinion, I would say that uh, so much of what we as people, um, and I, when I say people, I mean all people in this country okay. uh, deal with uh, as it relates to the criminal justice system Um, lies within the concept of discretion. So police have discretion. Um, Prosecutors who are um, the most powerful people in this whole system um, have tons of discretion. Judges have discretion and even juries have discretion. So it's really about this decision-making and uh, within the criminal justice system across the country Um, There are more people making uh, decisions about individuals within the system than there are, let's say, algorithms that are uh, supposedly making impartial decisions about what should happen to someone. 
Right. And so, for for example, uh, it's it's at uh, police officers officers' discretion to pull me uh, pull me over for going through a red light or just mm-hmm. ignoring an ambulance for going through the red light because hey, you know they may be going through an emergency. You're not, so I'm going to pull you over. Is that similar to what you're saying with discretion making a decision, even though both people did the exact same thing? Absolutely, and to even get a little bit more granular than that. Sure. It's the difference between uh, you being stopped at a because you've um, run through a red light, and the office and the officer saying, "Listen, don't do this again," or "Listen, be careful," or think about you know the other people that are on the road, and the next person who does the same exact thing getting a ticket. Mm-hmm. So that discretion. Um, really kind of governs so much of what happens. And th- there are times, be- especially because of the um, implementation of body cameras, that some officers uh, feel like they don't have as much discretion. But across the board, I think we're still seeing um, uh, police officers and other law enforcement, as well as prosecutors, having this ability to make determinations about whether or not they want to kind of actualize what what's happening um, within the system with one particular person. And, and and so if I'm if I'm understanding if I'm understanding this correctly, discretion could be a really great thing, or it could be a really bad thing, depending on who has the 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 discre- the, the power to use that discretion. Absolutely. I mean, discretion is a really good thing, right? Because first of all, we would never be able to, as a society, we would never be able to prosecute um, or even arrest as many people that, um, that commit crime, right? There's just no way to do that. Um, we don't have the resources, um, either financially or in terms of personnel to do that. So discretion is, is, is very useful in terms of figuring out um, what really needs to be addressed and what needs to be addressed in real time. Um, and then looking at other ways to address specific types of issues. Um, you know, so for instance, uh, if there's a situation, I'll use a traffic situation again, where uh, people are running through a stop sign at a certain intersection on a regular basis, you know, do you... Do you utilize uh, county dollars to place a police officer on that corner 24 hours a day or at the, at the heaviest times of traffic? Or do you maybe come up with like a, a public policy or a, a, a theory or something that you would use uh, to, to abate that, to that crime? So maybe you put up a, um, a sign or, or uh, maybe you, and in some jurisdictions, they'll put like a, a car that's been uh, T-boned in a car accident or something that's supposed to make people think about it. Or maybe they put up a billboard or maybe there's a television commercial or whatever the case may be. So we just don't have the resources to do that. And so that's one of the reasons that um, people who are working within the system have the ability sometimes to use that discretion. But you're absolutely right. It's a two, uh, it's a double-edged sword because a lot of times discretion follows familiarity mm. and, you know, you feel more comfortable. Uh, we all, I think, uh, feel a little bit more comfortable as human beings uh, affording someone discretion 
when you can kind of relate to that person or their struggle or whatever the case may be. And so because there is, uh, there has been a demonstrated lack of humanity um, in our, uh, in our society, sometimes discretion doesn't always work well for people who look like us. Mm, 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 mm. Well put. So discretion plays a very huge role in uh, criminal justice, public policy, and really, you know, interaction with one another on a daily basis. The only difference is when you and I are interacting, I really can't really enforce anything. Um, you know, it's just, you know, you and I talking. Right. But when somebody actually has some type of, you know, perceived power or some type of way to endanger someone, that ultimately could have some dire consequences. Absolutely. So I- if you are a black owned business or an investor and you would like to advertise on our show, go ahead and send us a message at DJM at DJMoultrie.com. Now, back to the show. Absolutely. Outside of discretion, what are some other things that people should be paying attention to when it comes to understanding the system? Um, so I think another thing that people should be paying attention to is uh, the system itself um, and the legislation and the, and the laws that are kind of being uh, promulgated and enforced um, in a particular uh, jurisdiction. And I know that right now, particularly because of the impeachment, we have a significant federal focus um, but the reality is so much of the power to impact your life lives at the state and local level. So, um, you know, there are people who say, you know, voting is not important. There's the electoral college. So your, vo- your vote isn't necessarily counted the way that you think it should be. But you should be kind of participating in those state and local elections because that's where that's who has the most impact on your life. And that's where you have the most impact as a citizen living in this country. And so knowing what's happening within your local and state government um, is really important. Looking at the legislation that the people that you've elected into office are, you know, what's being passed and even what's being proposed, because you can, you can really determine a lot about uh, some of the the uh, public uh, officials or legislators uh, based uh, based on what they're proposing as legislation, mm-hmm. and a lot of the things that they will propose will never make it um, to an actual law. But you can go to your state's uh, uh, legislative website and you can see every law that your uh, that your representatives have uh, have supported suggested voted for abstained from um, you can even see a, a lot of times depending upon the state what um, you know if they're even attending the sessions right so um, there there are other watchdog sites that will let you see who your legislators are being funded by who's contributing to their con- to their campaigns and so if, if you want to be knowledgeable about what's happening, I think that that's a really good um, place to start um, because you have the ability to see what's happening um, um, in relatively real time. And you also have the ability to kind of participate in a way that you can at the federal level. 
A lot of municipalities have hearings, a lot of counties have hearings, and you have the ability to actually go to that hearing and make a public comment sometimes um, if there's something that's going to affect you um, or, or uh, people like you um, and you are anticipating that that's going to have a long-term negative impact on your life. Well, we're talking about the state uh, and local level. For those who may not be familiar, what are we talking about? Are we talking about governors, mayors? Who else am I leaving out? Yeah, I think we're talking about all that. Um, we're definitely talking about your governor. Um, most uh, most cities and towns in the United States have a mayor. Um, some of them have city managers, um, depending, and it varies from state to state. Um, so that's a little bit of uh, research that you have to do on your own. Mm-hmm. But there's usually county officials as well, okay. um, a township officials. Um, so there are all of these kind of layers. A lot of, of us have aldermen. Um, there are all of these little layers of kind of bureaucracy that are running um, our city, our county, our town, um, ultimately our state. Um, but they really do have a significant impact on um, a lot of what's happening um, within our justice system. And you said you said we can go to their website. Is there something specific I should Google uh, when I'm trying to find a particular website where I can see, well, what currently is the, the, the laws and the, the legislation that is in place within my city? Yeah, I think there, there probably are. The one um, that comes to mind is GovTrack, G-O-V-T-R-A-C-K okay. dot U-S. And so that even though that's a federal legislative website, it will let you know what your what the representatives in your state are uh, up to. Right. So you you can see what your particular congressperson or senator is doing. And in terms of your individuals, um, your individual states, I would Google, you know, like legislative watchdog and then put in your state. Um, And that will likely provide you with uh, some insight in terms of uh, what's happening um, with the people that that you are uh, electing or choosing not to elect um, in your jurisdiction. Awesome. I'm definitely going to do that. The the one that's piquing my interest, uh, because I always say it's always good to know who's funding what. Absolutely. Because once you get behind the equity of things and understanding who has ownership of that idea, you can really start piecing some things together. Because uh, a lot of times politicians, in, in my experience, and please correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of times they are, you know, hired uh, hired help to uh, push somebody else's agenda. Have you seen that or do you have a different take on, on that altogether? No, I mean, I think that uh, despite some legislation that's supposed to um, address some of those issues, I, I agree with you that industry um, and corporations really are um, informing a lot of the decisions that legislators make. Um, but I would even take it a step further than that. Oh, please say, do, please do. Um, I, would, I, would, I would check the dollars. I would check how things are being funded by our elected officials, but I would also check how these civic and civil rights organizations are being supported as well. Now, because, say, say that one more time, because okay. we had a little bit of in and out. 
And I know what you just said is very important. So if you can mm-hmm. tell me, you say you're going to take a step further and say that part again. Right. So what I would do is not only check the, um, the uh, sources of funding for your elected officials, I would also investigate the funding for your civic and civil rights organizations, the ones that you're supporting, right? Who's funding those organizations? And I would also uh, be really clear about their platforms, right? The name of the organization does not necessarily uh, uh, dictate what the platforms or the agendas are of these work of these organizations. So I think that if you really and truly want to be informed, you have to pay attention. Um, I know we all, you know, have social media. Um, we're all kind of getting these news snippets, but really kind of paying attention and being focused about what's happening in your community and what's happening with legislation and, and processes that are taking place and enacted by uh both state, local, and federal government, but also, you know, being your own watchdog in a sense, because with the advent of, uh, you know, the internet, you can definitely go on and see what your legislators are doing. Um, And and that would be like the GovTrack and those other types of sites. But you can also see who's contributing to their campaigns. And then finally, I would say, Look at those civic and civil rights organizations that you're supporting, those nonprofit organizations that you're supporting. Any organization that you support, um, if it is a nonprofit, you are able to see um, tax information, you're able to see um, a, a lot of financial information. And even for these kind of grassroots organizations, Um, There are organizations that are investigating um, how these organizations are keeping afloat. Um, I'm not saying that to suggest that any of these organizations are necessarily um, doing something that is um, intentionally harmful for the community. But I am a a staunch and firm believer in being knowledgeable and having as much information as you can determine um, how you want to move as an individual. I love what you said. I don't know if you're going to be able to go deeper into this, but mm-hmm. you you mentioned um, that don't just pay attention to the name. Now, what we won't do here is I'm not going to say any names. But Right, as, as because, neither am I. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. But I've noticed that as well. And, you know, people will have names. And then when you actually get behind the name and behind the brand, see what I've noticed is these these civil, uh, these civil organizations, these community organizations have really great brands, and they've they've done all the necessary market research to brand themselves as wonderful organizations. And then once you actually see who's funding this thing, who's behind this thing, who's making the decisions of this thing, you're like, wait the brand and the people are two different uh, entities altogether. And it's a little concerning at at, at times. Right. Absolutely. Um, And I think that, uh, again, kind of going back to my, um, my upbringing, you know, my parents followed the kind of the black radical tradition. Um, And I grew up at a time where, 
um, there was a lot of infiltration of community, mm-hmm. civic and community organizations. Exactly. And so I think there's been enough time that's passed that um, people aren't necessarily thinking about that anymore in a really tangible way. And so I, I know with every organization that I support, not only financially, but even if I'm going to repost something or if I'm going to even give, invest a lot of my headspace to it, you know, I'm, I want to know who, who's, who's uh, behind this, this organization, where they're getting funding from, and what's their entire platform, you know? And I may decide that mm-hmm. there may be aspects of their uh, political or social platform that I don't agree with, but I don't want to be blindsided. I want to make sure that um, if I'm going to support this organization and what they're doing and be engaged in the work that they're doing with them, that I'm fully informed about um, who they are and, and where the funding comes from and who, who's funding the I agree. And something I do on the for-profit side, just for the listeners who, who want to know, I like to pay attention to who's on the board, you know, who's on the board of directors, who's, who's the advisors. And so you and I are very similar. And I didn't know we would have that in common, but mm-hmm. I, to me, that's everything. Like, yeah, okay. I see the facade and everything that's in front of me, but I really want to know, like if I go to a amusement park, yeah, you have a really great brand. The popcorn smells good. The pizza is wonderful. But when's the last time this roller coaster was checked out? And what was who inspected it? And why did they inspect it? And what grade did they give it? You know, that's just the way I've always looked at you know the operations of any organization, uh, let alone mm-hmm. you know on the nonprofit side as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, definitely. So, from what I'm hearing, you are putting together are not putting together, you're over a curriculum uh, uh, for the, the, the schools that you, uh, you spearhead. Am I understanding that correctly? Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely certain aspects. So in my current um, role, I'm responsible for all of the general education. Um, um, for those of us who are, you know, familiar with higher ed, um, that would be those courses that you were kind of questioning why you had to take them. You know, like, why do I have to take history? Uh-huh. Why do I have to yeah, take science? I remember. I remember why do I have to take math, much. right? But as a part of a liberal arts uh, education, those are some of the things that you, um, you know, that, that you um, take as courses. And in my previous role, just uh, prior to this one, I was uh, the uh, Associate Dean of Academic Programs, which is their Chief Academic Officer. Okay. So yeah, I do a lot of work around academic curricula, but I also do a lot of training curricula. Um, when I was working with the um, with Department of Justice Project Safe Neighborhood, I was the director of training and technical assistance. So I really do, I actually enjoy um, kind of building out these curricula um, because I think it's a really efficient way to teach Uh, different people, whether it's in a classroom setting, whether it's a community setting, government, you know, if you can come up with uh, a curriculum that helps to prepare people to do certain things, whether it's just to have a certain body of knowledge or to uh, develop a particular skill set, 
you know, I think it's, I think it's an amazing um, kind of gift to have. I know, I know a lot of people that I keep running into are actually uh, looking at starting their own online academies in different sectors. What would you say mm-hmm. is one of the most important uh, aspects or a couple of aspects when considering the curriculum in which you're trying to implement for any type of sector? Um, well, first and foremost, you have to know your audience, right? Well, be- let me back up. Before you have to know your audience, you have to know your subject matter. So having uh, knowing the subject matter is really important. Um, and that doesn't always know, that doesn't always mean knowing the ins and outs of a particular discipline, but knowing enough about a topic to be able to convey that to others is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have those skill sets or if you don't have that body of knowledge, working with people that do is very important. Um, so knowing your stuff, uh, first and foremost, uh, I would say is number one. And number two, know your audience. Um, I think uh, I've had some really exciting jobs. My job with um, Project Safe Neighborhoods was very exciting. I got to work with gangs um, kind of like on a regular basis and fly around the country and, and meet people who were doing like really exciting work. But my most valuable job was teaching in a community college because mm-hmm. I had to learn to adapt to the students, right? And sometimes those students were someone who maybe dropped out of the sixth grade or, or the second grade. And then sometimes that student was a person who had a MD or a, a, a PhD who just happened to come from a different country and needed to learn English. So being adaptable and knowing how to kind of uh, address the needs of your audience, whoever they happen to be, um, is very, very important. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for that, that information, because I know a lot of people are going down that, that path. Now, you also mentioned earlier about uh, working uh, alongside the, the prison system. How do you feel mm-hmm. about uh, movies like uh, Ava DuVernay's uh, The 13th? Uh, where they're talking about the 13th Amendment and how, how um, you know, the wording in there is basically saying, well, unless you're in prison, you know, you're free, unless you're in prison, now you're, you know, a slave. I know I'm messing it all up. But what are, you, <laughs> what are your thoughts on uh, that movement where people are starting to wake up? What's going on with the prison system? Well, I mean, I, I think the theme here is I'm all for knowledge, right? Um, and having good, accurate information as relates to the issues that affect um, our communities. I, I uh, saw the, the documentary. Um, I actually used the documentary in not only the classes that I was teaching, but in my role at Rutgers, um, had uh, very large screenings of it across the campus. Um, and so I think that it's certainly um, that particular uh, documentary um, really kind of woke some people up. Mm-hmm. And when I say woke some people up, I mean, our people. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of times people don't uh, necessarily get that there is uh, a connection between the mass incarceration of people of color, in particular, black and brown people, um, and the way that our legislation is written. 
right? And yeah. so I think it's really important um, that people start to see that connection. I also think it's really important, again, kind of going back to the idea of being knowledgeable about what's happening around you, that with that in mind, and, you know, uh, seeing this massive explosion of mass incarceration um, over the last 20 years or so, um, th- that it's that much more important to be diligent about what's happening around you, what's happening in your community. I agree. Now, I'm not sure if this was the same documentary. I watch a lot of documentaries. I pay, <laughs> I pay close attention to what's going on in this, this uh-huh. game out here. But there was one documentary I looked at, and it was saying that, and I won't call the organization out today. I'm going to be nice. Mm-hmm. But okay. there's an organization that has these group of companies who uh, basically fund uh, the private uh, private prison system. And uh, f- the conspiracy behind it is uh, they're doing it for manual labor. You know, you get mm-hmm. these, you get people into the prison system and then you're able to, to have them work on particular projects or particular things for these, com- you know, indirectly these companies who have financed the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the prison, they finance the prison and then they're getting basically cheap manual labor. Do you know anything about this? Do you have any thoughts about this or am I making all this up? Well, first and foremost, um, I don't know that we should be calling that a conspiracy. I think that's just oh, a fact you. at this point. <laughs> thank you. I was trying to tread lightly. I was trying to tread lightly. I get it. I get it. As an attorney, I appreciate it. But no, I think it's a fact. I think okay. that we are really kind of dealing with, you know, the the prison industrial complex and the fact that these prisons, whether they are public or private entities, are for profit. Yeah. Right. And I have this really great T-shirt that says all prisons are for profit. Wow. And it's and it's true. All prisons are for profit. Right. Of course, the most egregious are these private uh, entities um, that, um, as you mentioned, you know, are, are housing people who are and they have contracts with, you know, private corporations. But even in a public in the public sector, I mean, so much of um the industry that happens around a prison funds that community that it's hard when you have to close a facility from it's definitely from an economic perspective. Um, it's hard on that community. But I think um, the thing that you really have to kind of think about is uh, the idea that um, there's so many uh, it's prisons are such an ecosystem Right, because you have people that are working there. You have uh, you have these um, contracts that are coming into the prison. You know, whether it's uh, a food contract, whether you're dealing with um, the social work, whether you're dealing with um, any of the other kind of like um, support systems that they that they're bringing in. There are all of these people that are working within the prison system. Um, so that any time a prison closes, uh, you know, there's a lot of backlash and uh, certain certain aspects of the community. And the one thing that I um, often find myself uh, saying, especially when I was running um, this prison education program, is, 
you know, the people on the on the outside outside of the bars and the people on the inside of the bars have uh, very similar socioeconomic backgrounds. So, you know, if you want to think about this idea of prisons and how uh, prisons are kind of exploiting people, again, if you move back a little farther in the trajectory um, and look at ways to empower communities, um, there probably would not be as many prisons um, state. Want more access to the Black Equity Network? Perfect. I have just a solution for you. I want you to text 669-238-2434. Once again, that's 669-238-2434. I want you to text the keyword Black Equity to 669-238-2434. Now, what is that going to do? That's going to give you access to our personal Rolodex of business contacts. So every time that we have a potential business partnership, a business opportunity, someone says, hey, I want you to let people know about a job opportunity, we're going to send a message out to everybody who has text Black Equity to 669-238-2434. If I were you, I would send a text message right now. Back to the show. Now, you mentioned that great T-shirt that you have, All Prisons Are For Profit. And so then it makes me think about earlier in this conversation where you said it all comes down to discretion. Because wait a second, Mm -hmm. if all prisons are for profit, and if this person knows that, they, at their discretion, may say, well, hey, you know, we got to meet a quota. We got to bring in the necessary profit to this prison. And I, I, once again, I hate, you know, I don't want to be conspiracy here, but it's like, hold on a second. If these two meet and this person knows for profit and this person has the um, jurisdiction to enforce something on someone, they could potentially be working in cahoots. Well, um, I do believe that there have been some um, documented examples of where that that has been the case. Okay. Um, but um, I don't know of any specific examples that I would want to right. comment on at I this understand. time. But yeah, I mean, but it's only human nature. I mean, even if you, there, there are so many uh, parallels between what's happening with our correctional um uh, facilities and just again this whole prison industrial complex and what's happening with uh, medicine and the insurance companies, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like you need you need sick patients in order to keep the hospitals going, right. and you need and and you know we see the role that the insurance companies have, and it's very similar. I see uh, some significant parallels and yeah. the way these systems work. I mean, they really are dependent upon each other. So when you see the the rates of recidivism, I mean, it really isn't um, that coincidental because if you need those prisoners to, or those people who are um, in prison to um, to return to prison in order to keep a facility open, then, you know, um, um, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? I will leave that as an open-ended question for people to ponder. What are you going Mm -hmm. to do? Uh, So you mentioned uh, that you are currently about to grade some papers, and now you got me interested. (laughs) You got me interested. You're interested in grading papers. Oh, no, 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 not that part. 
But what is <laughs> what is the paper that was due that you're going to be looking over? What is the the subject matter, if you don't mind telling us? Oh yeah, sure. So um, uh, my students had to write, in addition to uh, you know the kind of like the other parts of their exam, they had to write about community courts. Okay. And and so uh, I that's one of the things that I think is. Um, kind of like an emerging field within the justice system and something I'm really passionate about um, as well. I do a lot of work around gang courts myself. Um, and really these are kind of like these uh, problem solving types of courts where um, people don't take like that traditional trajectory through the justice system. Um, they're essentially in these types of courts um, the courts are set up in a way that they are looking at all of these additional factors that may have caused this individual to commit a crime. Okay. And so I'd say probably the oldest of these types of courts is about 20 years old. They kind of started with drug courts, but they're drug courts, they're youth courts, gang courts, all of these courts that are there specifically to kind of look at why these external factors that have uh, caused this person to commit crime. And it's a good way to, um, these types of programs are a good way to kind of address those issues because the reality is if you have a person who's committing crime because they're trying to get a fix, they're just going to keep committing a crime. And if you don't address that underlying drug issue, mm -hmm. then you're going to see them continuously. And that's a, um, that becomes a drain for that person and their family, but also on the justice system um, in general. And so these types of courts exist to address those issues. And they kind of take a uh, uh, kind of like a casework approach um, or like a high touch approach mm -hmm. so that you have a social worker, you have a psychologist, you have a counselor, depending upon the type of program it is. You could have a financial advisor. You could have someone um, who's helping you with like um, um, uh whatever issues you may have that relate to your family, your family life, your home life. So you get all of those things. And uh, they, of course, range from program to program, state to state. But in a lot of uh, states, if you complete that program, then your um, the charge and conviction are removed from your record. Um, and so it's a good way to kind of avoid some of those collateral consequences of uh, being labeled a felon some, as well. It sounds like community court is actually solving some root problems from, from how you're describing it. Yeah, I mean, it's problem-solving court. Um, yeah. And uh, I think there's some amazing programs out there um, and some amazing uh, folks that are kind of running those programs. Um, and so that's definitely something that I think that... Um, I wanted my students to be aware of, but I also tell, you know, long, long, young lawyers, especially young lawyers of color, that, you know, the justice system is changing um, so uh, in so many different ways that, you know, at some point you're going to have to know why people are committing crime. Yeah. If you want to work in criminal law, um, it used to be that you just needed to know how to prosecute or defend a case. But at this point, kind of based on these community courts and, and problem-solving courts, um, and even family courts, you have to know uh, why people are committing 
different types of crime and how you can really kind of address those issues. And if you're going to understand why, that means you actually have to care a little bit. Well, you do. <laughs> you do have to care. Right. That is a good point. It's a good point. But it all comes for me, all the work that I do. Um, and I think the work that's done within the criminal justice system yeah. really just kind of comes down to the idea of humanity and seeing people as people and thinking about, you know, addressing the needs of a person yes. rather than a prisoner yes. or or a number or a demographic. It's really about people um, and seeing the humanity in people. I love it. I love it. Now, I also know that you uh, are someone that is uh, available for speaking engagements and, and hosting uh, discussions. Uh, what has been your experience in, in, in that area? Oh, okay. So yeah, I, um, I do a lot of workshops, um, a lot of capacity building workshops where I work with groups or sometimes corporations and communities on um, knowledge building. Okay. Um, a lot of times it is around, uh, it's on topics around the justice system. So, you know, teaching, uh, let's say a community group or a group of community leaders how to be more engaged around a certain issue, whether it's like an environmental issue in the community or how to engage with legislators um, in ways that are impactful. Um, so I do a lot of that. I also work with government, um, both state and um, state and federal government. Um, and I kind of talk to them about uh, the ways in which they can um, develop policies and processes that are uh, that have less of a discriminatory discriminatory impact on people, um, particularly within the juvenile justice system. So I do a lot of work with Department of Prisons, Department of Corrections, Departments of Education that are uh, and the courts that are kind of addressing uh, the issues of juveniles. Um, but the other thing that I do that I really like a lot um, is I work with young uh, black young adults, mm -hmm. um, college bound, um, and I help them to develop uh, self-advocacy skills. So for me, I went to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. um, my parents went to college. My parents' parents went to college. Um, but even beyond this whole idea of like the first generation college student, if your parents went to school 20 years before you did, they still don't know what you're supposed to do. Um, right. When you have an issue on campus, I mean, things are just changing at such an... Um, Every day. Um, and a, yeah, they're changing every day. They're changing at an alarming rate. Yeah. And so one of the things that I do is I work with um, kids of color on being self-advocates, um, advocating for themselves in the classroom and, um, and from the perspective of the institution. You know, if you get a failing grade, what do you do? Or if you have to withdraw, what do you do? Um, if you want a fellowship, what do you do? Like those types of things, because again, even those of us whose parents went to college, um, a lot of times we are not given the tools to even know how to begin to advocate for the things that we want. And what I've seen as a person who's worked in higher ed for a really long time is um, a lot of times the opportunities go to the people who know where they are. But 
too often our kids don't know where the opportunities are. And so that's a workshop that I, that I, um, that I do a lot of, and that's the one I actually enjoy the most. Yes. It sounds like, uh, you know, when I'm listening to your story, your background, you really enjoy empowering people so then they can, you know, kind of stand on their own too and know how they can uh, move within this society that, you know, is ever changing and ever evolving. And I definitely appreciate the work that you do. Um, It's very, very vital. And I'm actually glad that we bumped into each other because you're a person that I would definitely want uh, in in my corner so I can understand this this crazy world uh, that, you know, we're we're dealing with. Uh, How do people work with you and uh, contact you? Uh, if they have some type of way to, you know, work with you in a strategic way. Um, so people can contact me in a, a few ways. Okay. Um, they can go to my website, which is um, uh, kenyatyson.com. Um, and if you are interested in having me um, come and do a talk or something like that, that's typically the best way to get um, in touch with me. But if you're looking at something that's uh, larger, more like a, co- a corporate or some type of technical assistance um, type of uh, venture, um, you can reach out to me on my um, my uh, LLC my, um, website, which is ktysonassociates.com. Um, and uh, so those are the two websites uh, that I have, but I'm also reachable on Instagram. Um, my address there is my profile is I am Kenya Tyson and uh, Twitter um, and my Twitter is uh, at KK Tyson. So those would be the, uh, uh, the probably the best ways to get me. Um, and I'm pretty active. Um, and so if you send me a message or a DM or there's also a phone number and an email address, that you can reach me on, um, I will certainly get back to you pretty shortly. Awesome. Now, you mentioned earlier that you went to an HBCU in North Carolina. I did. And I am located in Charlotte, North Carolina. So when are you coming okay. back down here <laughs> to do some speaking engagements for, for the state? Oh, wow. Um, so that's good. All right. North uh-huh. Carolina. All right. Um, so I don't have anything planned see, I knew for... It. See? I knew it. <laughs> I don't have anything planned um, for 2020. I was uh, very fortunate to work with um, Dr. Yolanda Mead at Winston-Salem State, who runs their social work program last year. And so that was definitely a pleasure um, going, uh, having uh, speaking there. Um, But I don't have anything for 2020 on, uh, on my agenda in North Carolina, but my, but I do fill up pretty quickly. So if you are interested, um, Definitely send me a message and I would be happy to come out and uh, to speak with you. Well, in 2020, we're doing uh, something we're calling equity for the culture. Mm -hmm. And I think you would be a really great person for us to sit down. It's going to be a one to two hour workshop series, uh, at least once or twice a month. And we're going to take one topic and uh, just give people game on that particular topic. And I'm not sure what it would be with, with you and I, but I definitely can see us uh, maybe going through a, a, one, a three to five step process for people mm-hmm. to understand something. I don't know if it's 
you know, what do you do when you're pulled over? I don't know if it's, what do you do if you actually have to go to court? What are the things you need? But whatever it is, I think it would be uh, really wonderful for us to, you know, give that to the culture so they know, hey, here are the five things I need to do for this particular uh, thing or whatever it is that we decide. So I definitely would be interested uh, in having you being a part of that. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, I would definitely be interested in kind of participating in that. And and um, there's definitely a lot out there that we need to kind of, uh, you know, wrap our brains around. And, and sometimes it's just good to have like very manageable um, bite sizes exactly. so, that you, this, so that you know what you need to do. And it comes exactly. sacred nature. Yeah. That's exactly what the vision is. Let's hand it to them in a very bite-sized way, uh, you know, one week at a time, one month at a time. Uh, so you know exactly what you got to do. There's no questions. Here are the five, 10 steps. Uh, so yeah, I definitely am looking forward to doing that uh, and working with, with people from, from our culture. Uh, are there any final thoughts that you want to uh, bestow on us? You dropped a lot of wisdom today. Uh, <laughs> is there any final thoughts you have for us? Well, um, no, I will just, I would just mirror what I uh, said earlier, just be as knowledgeable as possible. Um, And we really need to think about how we can develop some kind of inside outside strategy so that we can work with people that are in the system, the people who are, um, you know, outside of the system, trying to put pressure on, on those who need to do the right thing. But I think knowledge is the is the bottom line. Let's start with a knowledge base and figure out a strategy where we can do some things that are going to move the needle to get us where we want to be as it relates to justice for um, Black folks in this country. Kenya Tyson, thank you so much for coming on the Black Equity Podcast. The doors are open for you to come back uh, anytime uh, for us to continue this conversation and just talk about what was you know what's going on in the culture. Maybe something happens uh, as far as like a big case and we can sit down and look at it and analyze it from the outside and, and see what our take is on it sounds good thank you so much for having me this is a pleasure you're very welcome we are truly grateful for today's guest if you are interested in becoming an approved black equity strategic partner with this company or one in the past simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email djm at djmotri.com once again djm at djmotri.com. Let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guests you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.